Hello. Hi. I'm Grace. And I'm Madeline. And we're Dragon Babies. Dragon Babies. We reread our favorite YA fantasy classics and discuss why they may be even better for adults. Yes, we do. This week, Alice's Adventures in Wonderland by Lewis Carroll, published in 1865. This episode was a listener request from Angela. Thank you so much, Angela, for requesting this book. It I kind of can't believe it took us this long to cover it. Yeah. If any of you have a listener request, you can get in touch at dragonbabiespodcast at gmail.com or hit us up on our website, dragonbabiespodcast.com. On the web. Let's start with a quick disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> this is the most popular book we've covered other than The Hobbit, I would say. And our Hobbit episode was a very special 50th episode where we kind of looked back on our fantasy history. We're going to just cover this book from the approach that we typically take, which is following our usual segments, talking about the nostalgia of it all. Mm -hmm. And we're not going to get too deep into the many, many criticisms and analyses of this text. So if you're looking for a super smart, insightful (laughs) podcast about Alice's Adventures in Wonderland that has fresh insight, go somewhere else. (laughs) I was going to say that right now. Yeah, no, that's a good disclaimer. We're just, we're going to treat this like we treat every book. We're not doing a special thing for this. And like good bringing up the Hobbit episode because Mm -hmm. I'm very comfortable in the Lord of the Rings fandom. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm very familiar with it. I like know what's what and I'm very familiar with the source material mm-hmm. um this this for me is like obviously this is a just behemoth in the zeitgeist uh and we read this book we're going to talk about this book but I'm not you know if I'm saying things that are some uh, you know uh sort of terrifying hate crime against the fandom <laughs> oh I'm, I sincerely apologize but I did enjoy this like I'm yeah. not I'm not about to be like this book is terrible. <laughs> no, and I'll provide some context about Lewis Carroll too when necessary in the discussion. Um, cool. But let's just start off our usual, usual way. Um, Madeline, would you like to give us a description of how what we usually say is the publisher chose to package and promote this book. Of course, <laughs> there are hundreds, is. thousands of editions in many different languages of this text and we're going to talk about the one that I had as a kid, which I still have today, uh, and which is ancient, surely. <laughs> it, there's from, not even a date on it. There's no publication date for this edition. It says it's part of the Modern Library, published in New York, and that's about it. When, I, you want to describe it? <laughs> yeah. So when Grace first brandished this at me this morning, I thought perhaps that this was some sort of cursed item. <laughs> I'm handing it off to you. Um, it is. It, it's brown. Um, the pages have a red gilt on the top, although that may just be age. It may be. If you can hear chickens in this podcast, it's because the neighbor has chickens. So enjoy that. There's a person who has a torch with like two lines of smoke, like a tiny, tiny little gold filigree person across the yeah. And I, I wonder if that's like the publisher. I think it's the publisher's emblem. Yeah, I'm sure that the. I'm wondering if this came in a set, like a modern library set, and that's why it doesn't have its own publication date. Okay, but I don't remember any other books like this in our house. And yeah, go ahead. 
I mean, this doesn't look like a children's book. I pick this up and I'm like, oh, this is a book of Psalms. (laughs) (laughs) And this one has my name and then 5-91. Yeah, so this is almost as old as I am. Very good year. (laughs) Almost as old as I am. Um, and it, it has the original illustrations from the first edition by John Tenniel. Which are brilliant. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about those illustrations. Yeah, they're really incredible. Um, yeah, and as a comforting little tome. It has Elsa's Adventures in Wonderland through the looking glass. And then what's the name of the poem that's also included? It's like the the, the hunting of the snark, which is a poem that Lewis Carroll wrote later on okay. that's also included because okay. it falls into the nonsense literature genre like the other works. Cool. Okay. Um, so it, there's really not much to comment on here. Uh, it's some kind of linen, some kind of like stiff. It's, it's like your standard textile. book binding cotton over cardboard covers. Yeah. Oh. So yeah, uh, nothing on the back. It's kind of scary looking. Although as a child, I probably would pick this up off of my mom's bookshelf and be like, what is this? <laughs> um, and start reading it. So maybe it's doing exactly what it needs to do. We'll put a picture of our edition up on our website for all of you to wonder at. Plot summary for those who haven't read this book before, somehow don't know this story. Um, We're going to do a quick refresher. Another disclaimer, this book is very dreamlike and things and events come and go. (laughs) It's hard to follow it linearly. Yeah. Um, So I actually, a a few different times I paused my recording and just went back like, wait, what? And then I was like, oh, okay. Yeah, this this just happened. (laughs) Um, The book is about Alice, a little girl who is feeling bored sitting with her sister on a bank and decides to follow a white rabbit that she sees darting past her who also says aloud or in her mind, I'm going to be late. And she follows the rabbit through a little rabbit hole, which leads her to fall and fall and fall in slow motion down this hole filled with cabinets and mysterious objects and empty marmalade jars (laughs) until (laughs) she comes to the bottom of the hole and she's in what we call Wonderland. Right away, she is trying to continue following the rabbit, but realizes that she can't continue through a little locked door. She finds a key on a glass table, but then realizes the door is too small for her to go through. So she ends up drinking a little drink that instructs her to do so, which makes, <laughs> drink her, very, me. makes her very tiny, but then she can't reach the key, which is back up on the table. So then she eats a cake that says, eat me. And then that makes her very big, but then she's too big to go back through the door. There's a lot of back and forth of Alice's size changing and her general self changing. It's not just her physical body that is altered. It's also her mind because she can't remember things that she is accustomed to knowing like verses and times tables and things like that. Very dreamlike. When Alice is large, she cries a pool of tears. Then she shrinks again because she picks up the rabbit's fan and she begins to have to struggle to swim through the pool of tears that she created. There are many other little animals that come and are struggling through the pool and she begins talking to them and they make it they make their way out of the tear pool and then try their best to become dry by running around until they dry themselves. Right, yeah. Um, 
Which, you know, that works. Alice starts to experience some of the frustrating and odd conversations that she has with all the denizens of Wonderland. Yeah, I mean, she does keep telling them about how her pets eat other members of their species. Alice really struggles. She's so excited about her cat and all the wonderful things that her cat can do. Which I get. I get. We can understand. Um, But in that excitement, she keeps talking about how her cat can eat and catch mice and rats and birds, and she happens to be talking to mice and birds, so everyone gets a little upset. Alice, you get when you're speaking, you must know your audience. So Alice moves on after scaring everyone away from her by talking about her cat. And she runs into the rabbit who thinks that Alice is his house servant, Marianne, and sends her to go get his gloves and fan, which he has lost. Not all humans look the same, Mr. White Rabbit. (laughs) When Alice gets to the house, she decides to eat something again that she finds on a table, um, which, oh, it's it's a, another little bottle, and it doesn't have instructions on it, but Alice is like, well, other things have been happening, so why not try this? She's very brave. And she becomes absolutely enormous to the point that her limbs are sticking out of windows and the chimney and things like that. Um, and a lizard tries to get her out, and she kicks him away into the sky. Yeah, the lizard is abused. Bill the lizard is a tragic figure yeah. throughout this book. Um, she runs off after finding little cakes to eat that make her small again and continues on. Then she meets a caterpillar who is sitting on a mushroom. I love the caterpillar. And asks her questions about who she is and why she is and whatnot and refuses to really give her much information other than the fact that one side of the mushroom will make her larger and one side will make her smaller. He is a philosopher. He is. Alice is something of a philosopher, too, which we can talk about later. I'm a philosopher myself. Um, And so she gets mushroom bits that help her get her back to where she wants to be and that she uses going forward to kind of modulate her size. Mm -hmm. Um, At that point, Alice finds a house with a fish footman and a frog footman (laughs) and she goes inside and meets the duchess who is taking care of a baby and the duchess's cook who is attacking the duchess and the baby with pots um alice ends up taking the baby and leaving the baby turns into a pig so she lets the pig run off into the forest and then (laughs) she meets the cheshire cat um The Cheshire Cat was hanging out in the Duchess's house and is now in the forest and can make himself appear and disappear in bits and pieces and tells Alice that in one direction is a March Hatter. I'm sorry. In one (laughs) direction is a March Hare and in the other is a Mad Hatter, but they're both mad. So she decides to follow the route of the hare and discovers a tea party that's been laid out in front of their house. Going on forever. Going on forever, it's an eternal tea party because they're stuck at the same time on the same day because their watch isn't working and also because the Mad Hatter had a fight with time. Bad person to fight with. (laughs) Because he was singing a song at the Queen's Gala or whatever it was, um, and she accused him of murdering time because he wasn't singing very well. (laughs) And then they were on the outs ever since. 
So Alice takes part in the tea party for a little while, which is very annoying. Mm. <laughs> it's when she's asked the, why is a raven like a writing desk riddled, which yeah. there is no answer. Um, and in the end, Alice just kind of heads out because she's, <laughs> she's like, I'm done so here. over it. Um, at that point, she finally manages to find the garden that she was looking for throughout the book. She glimpsed it through that first little door that she was too small to fit through and then didn't have the key to, um, which is the queen's garden. And the queen and her subjects are playing croquet while the queen commands that everyone be executed because she is she has an anger problem. Yeah. Um, so Because she has an anger problem. <laughs> So Alice takes part in the game of croquet to the best she can. She's playing with a live flamingo and there are little hedgehogs being used as balls. So it's challenging. Um, and the Cheshire cat shows up again and causes a stir because he only makes his head appear and the queen <laughs> orders off with his head, but then they fall into a debate about how you can behead something that it's only a head. Uh, it's, you know, very silly. Very silly. And then he just kind of boops out of there. And then he heads out. At that point, Alice is sent with a griffin to hear the mock turtles story, which is a very odd interlude. Yeah. Um, This was the part that I had the most trouble (laughs) with. (laughs) The mock turtle is very sad and tells her about how he was once a real turtle, but then launches into the lobster quadrille. That's what it's called, right? Yes. Yep. Uh, the lobster quadrille, um, and they teach her that dance, um, and also sings a song about soup, (laughs) beautiful soup. So much soup. Amazing song. (sighs) At that point, the griffin takes Alice back to the court because it's time for the trial, and the knave of hearts is on trial, accused of stealing the charts. I couldn't stop thinking about my one of my very favorite Adventure Time episodes, The Other Tarts. The Other Tarts. If you have Hulu, it's all on Hulu, so check it out. One of my favorite shows. So the trial is, uh, you know, a disaster. Um, maybe we can... Maybe we can have some Madeline's Law Corner later and we can talk about it a bit. I tried to come up with something insightful uh, about... <laughs> I'd be stunned if you if you were able to. Legalness, but I... Mean, there's I... definitely a larger commentary on legal proceedings and the way that rampant authority can impact a fair trial, don't you think? Yeah, and also how sometimes rules of evidence are more a hindrance than a help. I do admin law, so I don't have to do rules of evidence. So, <laughs> so the the trial, yeah, it it happens. I don't I don't really want to go into it. It's pretty ridiculous. Um, and Alice is called as a witness, but she overturns the jury box and all the animals that are in it get upset yeah she just like flips them all over the floor and then she puts the lizard in the wrong way bill comes back on top of his head and seems to lose his wits after that, that poor lizard him and the dormouse took his chalk away so that he couldn't write on his slate during the trial wasn't nice of her um 
So then Alice just totally loses it. She tries pointing out how pointless everything that they're doing in the trial is, especially when the queen says, no, sentencing first, then the verdict. Right. Um, And in the end, she says, you're just a pack of cards. And then they all fly into a fury all around her. They don't like that. And she wakes up from her dream. It was all a dream. In her sister's lap, and her sister mm-hmm. then is like, oh, what a funny dream. Yeah, Alice runs inside for tea after telling her sister about her dream, and then her sister sits and has a nice little reverie about how Alice is really creative and imaginative, and she'll have this playful spirit about her all her life. Yeah, and I, uh, this made me think about like the things I don't remember or know if they are true or if they're just tales that like this was written for a young relative of um, Lewis Carroll's and that's why he like speaks lovingly at the end there about the child yeah we can talk about that okay I was like Grace will probably research this yeah let's get into our old and new impressions of this book I'll go first um I don't think I've read this book in its entirety before. I think that probably parts were read to me. uh, And I think that I've read some of Through the Looking Glass. Um, It's also tough because I've seen the Disney movie as well as two of... I don't know how many there are. Are there only two of those live action ones? I don't know. Okay. Um, I don't even want to talk about that. They they came out when I was in college. So there was a a theater in Oberlin where you could go and see a movie for like five bucks. So we would go see new releases. Um, And that was one of them we saw. And uh, I think that, I think it was the second one because like Anne Hathaway was in it and the rabbit is like really drugged out. Like he's just like flipping out and jumping out the walls and stuff. I don't know. I've only seen the first one. Okay. Anyways, this book, uh, I really enjoyed reading it actually, or listening to it rather. Um, it's, it's very like philosophical. I thought a lot of, uh, Camus. (laughs) Wow. We're breaking out the Camus. (laughs) Um, because of the absurdism of it all. Uh, and I, I really enjoyed that aspect, actually. And it, it actually, I was listening to part of it just sitting on the couch because I have allergies and I'm tired. Um, and I started to drift off, which made it Ooh. really weird. Yeah. <laughs> and the one, the one that I listened to, I'd actually love to give a quick shout out. Greatest audiobooks. Check out check out their YouTube channel. Uh, I really enjoyed listening. The narrator did a great job, especially with the uh, more visual parts of it, uh, like describing them and keeping you pulled in and stuff. So highly recommend. Um, And it also made me think a lot about how I don't like the cartoon Disney version very much. Um, And it's kind of a bummer that it's, it's just like, you can't say it's bad, of course, but I thought that the Disney version was more inventive and interesting than it actually is, but it's not. It's like all of the material is right here. Like it's pulled straight from the book. And me and Grace were talking about how if the movie had come out a little bit earlier or a little bit later, it probably would have been more interesting. It should have been 
darker, but not like the Tim Burton weird no. dark whatever you call it that came out in the live action ones. And like the cartoon came out in 1951. Yeah, it should have been folksier and more earnestly whimsical and absurd and it should have just embraced the absurd elements and try to instead of trying to be so slick i think that all of the movie versions that i've seen like they're trying so hard to be just super slick and seamless and that's not what this book is i mean i guess i disagree that they're trying to be seamless i do think that film adaptations of this book have gotten caught up in their own form to the point that there's essentially saying this is a book about a dream we can go in these more extreme directions and for the cartoon that was like hyper technicolor like super cheerful yeah and like bright, manically cheerful really yeah like frenzied yeah pretty much um for tim burton that was this like emo goth teen dream made for hot topic <laughs> and i i was very into hot topic in my day and it blows my mind that it exists in like the exact same form as yeah. it did is when i was 15 like they have yeah. all the same kind of merch and it's it's wild hot topic has resisted so many different like economic <laughs> trials and tribulations well and know? also like generationally it's just wild to me because usually right they have that audience that still it, exists. it still exists like kids are still into that even though when i was a kid i was and there into are adults that. now that were teens that, that still are still into like it yeah. yeah and i think i'm a little disappointed Because there's elements, like I was a goth emo, like, you know, just depressed teen and tween. And there's certain elements there that are really fantastic. But then the whole thing together is just kind of like, ugh. Uh, Which is what I'm trying to say by saying that the Disney version was trying to be seamless. Seamless in creating its own world. And it should be more open Mm -hmm. to uh, just whatever you want to put on it. Fluctuating reality. Yes, exactly. Um, And uh, I just, I just think the book is so much, and I have seen like t-shirts with the original illustrations from the book rather than from the Disney version. But if you're like, it's good because it is very goth and emo in an Mm -hmm. earnest way. It's, it's very dark. Well, and I think it's, such a testament to the book that like when you really of course you can't say exactly what shaped these different like social uh uh, I'm not even sure what the phrase I'm looking for here but like the existence of that like emo teen goth hot topic person Mm -hmm. (laughs) that like type of personality that type of teen or adult um I think that these books did shape that yes. in a lot of ways yes. and helped make it exist today. Definitely. And of course, then you get into like, well, how much of it was inspired by the works that were inspired by the book? Like, I think getting back oh, but to without the, the book, the works wouldn't have existed. Well, right. And in a lot of the criticism that I looked at, there are a lot of critics who are frustrated and are saying like, when people talk about this book, they're talking about 
interpretations and adaptations of the book a lot they're of the time. Actually they're not actually going the to the book. source material yeah. or thinking about the time and place in which it yeah, was created. Yeah, this book is really old. It's really old. It was written during, you know, the Victorian era England. That's what, when she said, um, usually when she went to the beach, she would see bathing houses. Right. That's when I realized like, oh, this book is so old <laughs> that it's from a time when people who wanted to swim like if they were women, couldn't be seen. So they would literally, and I've looked up bathing houses before, I think because of- Well, bathing machines yes, is what she says. Yes, bathing yeah. machines. Mm-hmm. They're like, because they are like these little houses. Yeah. They look kind of like outhouses, yeah. only you would like, they're in this kind of like floating contraption mm-hmm. and you would take them out to sea and then you could swim, like there's no bottom. You mm-hmm. could like dip your feet in the water in them and you could be private. Yeah. Yeah, which is just (laughs) a wild thing. And it really speaks to what a different time this book is from. For sure. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So it sounds like it was an interesting opportunity for you to revisit how the adaptations have shaped your understanding of the story. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm really happy that I went back to the original source material so that I won't be one of those people who, when they're talking about this, Mm -hmm. are only talking about the Disney versions and how they kind of annoy me. (laughs) (laughs) It was really interesting to reread this for me as well. Um, It's been a while since I've actually read the book. I have reread Through the Looking Glass more recently because I um, just like Through the Looking Glass more than Mm. Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And adaptations do borrow more heavily from that They definitely, yeah. They take material from both um, and kind of combine it because you know they're both like dream worlds you can put little pieces where you want to Mm -hmm. and because Lewis Carroll wasn't really concerned with a concise plot or like (laughs) or rather was throwing that out the window in favor of playing with logic and language and putting these little puzzles together for you to kind of work through many of which I don't think have an answer answers. Yeah. Um, and reading this. So I don't remember the first time I actually read the book when I was young, I, was definitely a well, little... Well, Grace, 91. Well, when I was you were four, four. I, I don't think I was reading it myself. But I think it was read being it to read you. to me. Yeah. Um, the first time I read it myself, I had already seen the movie because the sure. 1951 movie was Everywhere. a movie that I watched a lot when I was young, yeah. um, probably more than you because when I was younger... Disney hadn't come into its renaissance yet. Because like, it was before the 90s. You were born before the 90s. Yeah. Well, and even when I was, you know, a, a little kid, like that was when like Beauty and the Beast came out and mm. then uh, and then Aladdin and then The Lion King, I think. The Lion Little Mermaid King was, was a bit somewhere later. in there. Yeah. Um, but Lion but, King was my favorite. But so it, it was really the older movies that I, uh, the older Disney cartoons that I would watch, like Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, Snow Alice White. in Wonderland, The Sword in the Stone, um, Snow White. We didn't watch quite as much. It's kind of scary. <laughs> well, parts of it are scary. Scary and also boring. How do you do it? <laughs> I don't know. Um, Too many men. So yeah, that that did like leave quite an impression on me. But fortunately, I feel like I was even young, able to pretty well separate the book from that adaptation. And I think it's because of John Tenniel's incredible illustrations. Mm, yeah, um, because they're so potent and so 
integral to the story. One of the reasons that they can exist like that is because Lewis Carroll created his own illustrations for his first manuscript Mm. and then decided when he was going to get it published, he wanted to get a professional to do the illustrations. He was like, I'm not a a artist. I'm an author. Like I need an actual artist to do these (laughs) because he did write the story for Alice Liddell, who was the daughter of the Dean at the college where he was a professor and academic in mathematics, um, Christchurch college, part of Oxford um and he created the manuscript and put all the illustrations in and then she and her siblings were so encouraging about the story that they said you really should try to get this published um and then at that point he felt like he needed someone who yeah was more professional um although his illustrations are cool too i've seen some of them Um, And I think that because John Tenniel had those to go off of, he had this really clear vision Uh, of what what it should look like. Um, And reading it, I was so impressed by how Lewis Carroll didn't go into too much detail describing things when he knew that he would have an accompanying illustration. Because it wasn't necessary. Like the text and images really inform one another and like speak more about each other like an actual children's book totally but i think because this is you know because there's so much going on in these pages Mm -hmm. it helps like create a kind of shorthand where he doesn't need to go into like the queen's subjects were playing cards because first of all we get the visual and then we also get the weird little details going through that like they were flat and wide and had their hands and feet at the corners. <laughs> and also the bit about how the king put his crown on over his wig when he was the judge and like talking about how awful he looked <laughs> because of his general body confusion yes. that was going on. Um, so I really, really appreciated that rereading it as an adult. Also not being a child who takes everything pretty much at face value. Mm. I found it a lot funnier. Um, like it made me laugh out loud quite a bit, uh, because there are all these great, like social impropriety moments. Mm, Um, and Alice is so attuned to trying to be a polite child that she keeps attempting that approach. And then everyone else just rejects that completely. (laughs) Like no one is excited about Alice. They're always just like, (laughs) Oh my God. who are you? What are you doing here? Get out. When she's asking questions during the mock turtle story and the Griffin. And like, that's the stupidest question I've ever heard. Like, yeah. I can't believe that you would even venture to voice that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it just happens again and again. So it or also with the Dormouse, like the, the Mad Hatter and the Marcher hate her. <laughs> yeah, they, they really, really are not into her guesting at their party. It's also very funny that the first thing they say to her is, will you have some wine? And she says, well, I don't see any wine. And they're like, well, we didn't invite you. So <laughs> it's a match. <laughs> Um, yeah, so I, I really enjoyed the humor of the book quite a bit more and I found it also less frightening, I would say, Mm. um, because one of the reasons I loved through the looking glass when I was young is that it is just like kind of unsettling in a lot of ways. And Alice's Adventures in Wonderland has 
a lot of similar elements where you don't really have control over your body Mm. or your experience and you're being like thrust from moment to moment. Um, And even though Alice can exert some control by like eating things, they're mysterious to her and she doesn't know how exactly they're going to affect her. Yeah, I think too that rereading it this time, I was able to put some pieces of the story into like a more accurate context than I had when I was younger. Oh, I think that when I was, I mean, so what you always hear about this book is like, it's trippy. It's about drugs. Lewis Carroll lived during a time of legal opium use in England. But the thing is that I really don't think it's about drugs <laughs> and there's also yeah, I there's didn't no, get that feeling there's no evidence that Lewis Carroll actually ever tried opium or any other drugs um that sounds like that characterization was really put on the book in the 60s and 70s oh, and Jefferson okay. Airplane wrote an entire song that is using place names and plot events from Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass and pairing it with lines about getting high. Oh, okay. Yeah. I did think of that song while I was <laughs> yeah. reading this. And I also, I agree that I, I just don't think it's about drugs. No, it's about a dream. It's, <laughs> I mean, it's about and it's so a dreamlike state dreamlike. and it's yeah. about absurdism. Mm-hmm. It, I don't think it's about drugs. That was important for me to put together because I had always always felt like that aura was like surrounding the book and like oh Lewis Carroll was high when he did this but no, I he don't think so. was an academic a mathematician he was a deacon <laughs> like he wasn't in the church of England um he wasn't out getting high um so I think that's important to keep in mind <laughs> and Another cool piece of the book is that it was a story. It it was developed from a story that he told to um, the children of the dean of the college where he worked one afternoon when they went on this long rowing trip with their dad and with Lewis Carroll, um, real name Charles Lutwidge Dodgson. I never really know. Did you say Lutwidge Dodson? Lutwidge. Lutwidge. Charles Lutwidge Dodson. Charles Lutwidge Dodson. I don't know. Yeah, we're American. We're not going to be able to pronounce things very well. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, he made his pen name by basically like translating different pieces of his name to Latin and like going backwards and then like picking the English word that was the most similar. Let me me just say, this does not sound like someone who does drugs for fun. (laughs) Sounds like someone who like writes uh, out grammatical tables Mm. for fun. (laughs) He, He was an inventor. He came up with a lot of different like logic puzzles and games, including like a version of what became Scrabble. Um, and he uh, always had a lot going on. Yeah. Um, the piece, the other piece that was always, um, that made me like, once I learned about this, I felt kind of uncomfortable about these books and how to approach them is that Uh in later years, like in the last 30 or 40 years, there have been newer biographies about him that have like had the, um, agenda of portraying him as having some kind of romantic attraction to children. Mm. Um, but is that true though? There's no, I mean, there's no way of knowing for sure, but they are looking at a few things 
from a modern perspective that if you look at from a Victorian perspective, make a lot more sense. Yeah. Children and adult relationships were very different. Well, there are two main things that people cite as like reason for believing this. One is that he never married, um, which for like someone of his status and his family. Maybe he was just gay. Well, yeah. But then also his diaries, which... I think they have his diaries for his entire life, except for a period of 10 years that's missing. Um, And then also like a few pages that have been ripped out. Um, But people speculate that his family might have done that because there were things that they didn't want, like about the illicit affairs with women that he was having. Okay. So they're using the absence of the diary as proof of his. Okay. So, well, well, there's that piece. And then the other piece is that he was a photographer and illustrator, and he had a lot of portraits of partly dressed or nude children. But during the Victorian era, that was super, super commonplace Mm -hmm. like christmas cards had naked children right they put naked cherubs all over everything right and that was the aesthetic behind it like the nude child because nudity as a child was inherently not sexual and he also would always have like their parent with them when they were like modeling for him um like he was never going off alone unsupervised with children so it's complicated and i think i had a while when i didn't want to like like these books or thinking about them because it was like, well, I just don't want to touch that with a 10 foot pole. But yeah. reading more about it, I do think that that's another issue of like approaching the books and approaching his life from a modern perspective instead of from okay. a Victorian era. But I do want to couch everything and just like there are so many different yeah, um, approaches to this, uh, many different feelings among different historians and literary experts. Okay. Um, anyway, I've gone off on this way too long. I'm finishing up my impressions by saying that I can now put that context to work and reading the story and I can still really enjoy it and identify with it in a lot of ways. I think the main thing I appreciate is that realizing this as an adult that like I kind of maybe skimmed over as a child when the when like the dialogue would get too wordy and twisty and just Mm. be like okay (laughs) keep going I'm not gonna figure this out um is that Alice is really a philosopher about yes. her own existence yes. and her life and who she, she is. is an existentialist. She's constantly questioning like, okay, because I've changed in this way, then what is my essence? What is my being? Like, who am I? What am I? Um, and that's really cool to follow along with. Like yeah. she is a smart, inquisitive, bold little girl. And Can't stop talking about her cat. And she loves, <laughs> loves, uh, well, I, what's that- her cat's name? Uh, I don't remember, but that actually struck a, a real chord with me, like many children when I was a child, and now that I'm an adult still, I can't stop talking about my pets. <laughs> like, I I did a, a volunteer thing once with a, a woman who, like, I started out I just met her I was like look at my dog and she's like oh I don't like dogs and I was like no (laughs) what are we gonna talk about all day (laughs) it's awkward you know Dinah Dinah okay where else do we go from here well we can talk about like I love the anthropomorphized animals in this book so much it's very classic British but in a um, more hectic but way. they're all so, like, rude and annoying yeah. in a way that I actually really appreciate. 
appreciate because they're designed to create conflict. Yeah. There's never going to be a boring conversation throughout the entire book. Yeah. Um, And they're all really challenging Alice Mm -hmm. in a way that I think is like a bit healthy, you know, and it, it helps subvert logic the way that Lewis Carroll is interested in doing, because instead of following along with like conversational structure, the way that you typically do, Mm -hmm. they are undermining her at every turn. Yes. Um, So whenever she feels like she knows the next logical step to take, they're like, whoops, nope. Um, Or they invert the order of different phrases within a sentence. It's kind of like, it reminded me a little bit of improv, only it's the opposite of improv because you're supposed to yes and. (laughs) And they're constantly shooting her down. But they're constantly being like, no, shut up. (laughs) I kept thinking about another one of my all-time favorite children's books, which I feel like we could cover. I don't know if we can classify it as fantasy completely i think we could we spent that rule a bit the uh, phantom toll booth um yeah by norton juster i don't know if i'm pronouncing that correctly i'm sorry um but i first read that book when i was in fourth or fifth grade and it just like opened my eyes to the wonders of messing with language and logic Mm. in a a fantasy setting Mm. um and then also making the intangible tangible during that process um, which also happens in this book where they're talking about like a certain rule or something and then there's like a creature who represents that yeah and I I also think the animals were very clever and punny in a way that I couldn't always pick up on because Mm -hmm. it's in Victorian English Um, but there was one part where she was talking about love or like amour or something and she said she'd seen when she's talking to the duchess yeah, and she said she'd seen in her brother's books like Amor, Amas, like Amate. Oh, mm-hmm. And that I don't know if this is true, but it rung a chord in my head because the first verb you learn in Latin is to love, which is Amo, Amas, Amat. Like mm-hmm. those are the forms of it. So I wondered if it was like that. And then she moved off into French and I was like, I know less about French than I do about Latin. Well, and she did the same thing with the French. She used like, you know, a phrase that's going to be at the beginning of any children's French book, which Mm. is, where is my cat? Mm. Um, And then I also like think about how that maybe informs the Cheshire cat showing up and disappearing Uh, and like being in little bits and pieces throughout the story. Yeah, And there's so many little allusions and ideas and like threads that you could follow and nobody knows (laughs) what they actually mean yeah and like we've said i think a lot of them just don't mean anything i think charles dodgson was i mean we know that he was very intelligent he was a mathematician who um create some theorems and rules and there's also speculation that this book is kind of commentary on the state of modern mathematics at that time. Oh, jeez. Where he's That's saying definitely like, over my head. Oh, you're coming up with things that you say mean one thing, but they could mean nothing. And like, you're trying to get all theoretical about this. Oh, um, so there's also, yeah, some speculation about that. Okay. Which um, I would not pick up on because uh, I'm not well, a math. Neither of us are math historians. <laughs> or I don't... <laughs> I never even took calculus. Um, I mean, I think more than anything, like this is the product of a very busy mind. Yeah. And I saw uh, a great line when I was reading about um, literary nonsense, which is the genre that this is classified under. Literary nonsense. Yeah. Brilliant. Um, That's great. That said... uh, You know, some people... People tend to associate that with 
a lack of meaning, but it, there's actually excessive meaning. Like there's yeah. so much. This book is very you, dense, right? That yeah. you, you can't parse it all out. And when you think you've figured out a thread, then that you they've already moved on to the next. It reminds me of a like if you watch a show and the script is just like really, really like kind of like Thirty Rock. Mm-hmm. Where there's so much, yeah, pat, like, like joke, everything joke, joke, joke. is a yeah. joke or a pun or a reference or like there's no excess dialogue. Yeah, and I think Terry Pratchett mm, is also yes. um, inspired by Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. Um, I think there is some similar exploration of just playing with logic and then also subverting like classic structures within fantasy and within literature. I mean, this, this is a really like popular fantasy, like one of the most popular fantasy books of all time to this day. It's mm-hmm. so enduring. Yeah. Um, so of course we're going to see it in pretty much everything. <laughs> um, but there are some specific authors that we love who I think uh, are more inspired by it than others. We already talked about how amazing these illustrations are a little bit, but I I think that, yeah, these images are so much more enduring than anything from any of the film adaptations. Um, and I just, yeah, I just opened to the grumpy caterpillar where we only see his back and he's sitting on top of his mushroom with his hookah smoking and um, preaching down at Alice. Yeah. And people, I think that this in particular, like the smoking caterpillar is why people think like, I feel like that's part of the impetus for like, this is about drugs. Cause look, there's drugs, but, but it's they're also not hookah. thinking about the fact that it's a hookah, which is easily used for tobacco more than anything and else. It, especially people who are like attached to one like that. It's going to be tobacco mm-hmm. when I like, uh, sorry, I'm not trying to be this annoying person right now, but I'm going to charge ahead. But here we go. Um, <laughs> this w- book is about being annoying and embracing your annoying self. So let's go yeah. in. Um, so when I was in Beirut for like, I did a brief study abroad there. Um, the guy that was always at our boarding house, he, I don't know if he owned it or if he was just a building manager or whatever, but he would, he was always at the desk there. He would always just like, you know, put up a hand when we came in to be mm-hmm. like, Hey, you're still alive. <laughs> um, <laughs> and he was attached to a hookah and I, I could smell it. Like the whole place smelled like that sweet, um, tobacco, like the, the puck or whatever that you put mm-hmm. in a hookah. Um, and it, it that's what people who are smoking it all the time, that's what it is. It's just tobacco. It's like people who smoke a lot of cigarettes. It's not freaking opium. You're not attached to an opium pipe. Like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> you would really not be doing well. No, <laughs> you would be dead very quickly, I think. Um, so anyways, yeah. And I, I just, I can appreciate the illustrations uh, just as much, if not more, as an adult as I did as a kid. But yeah, like again, John Tenniel drew them. Sir John Tenniel, he was knighted for his artistic achievements. Knighted for artistry. Mm-hmm, that's right. That's awesome. I wish we lived in a world where that were like, you know. Uh, the dodo also to wrap up animals, just like animals in this, animals book, in this um, book, was Lewis Carroll's character. Like he saw that as himself, which is why the dodo uh, is like silly and stuffy and the other animals make fun of him being like, you don't know the words that you're using. <laughs> um, yeah, that is interesting. Let's talk about pretend food. Pretend food. Treacle? (laughs) The treacle well. Um, Yeah, I did love the way the Dormouse told the treacle story uh, because at first it is just so cute. It's like a kid telling a story and you ask them a question and then they pause for a little while and then they're like, treacle. Yeah. (laughs) But then he gets so set on treacle being the answer to every question. 
question that that's the only and plot point that he can provide. I, I should clarify um, that treacle. Is it just like very sweetened porridge? No. Grace is shaking no. her head. No. Treacle is like a caramel. Oh, so it's like a candy. Mm-hmm. It's it's a it's a syrup. So okay, we talked about this in another book I, that we covered. I can't remember which one it was. We discussed treacle in it. Um, there was some kind of treacle tart that played a large role. Oh, right. Um, because it's just like the sweet stuff that is contained within another vehicle. Okay. Um, so you could make a treacle porridge, <laughs> maybe kind of weird. Um, but yeah, they're, they're drawing treacle up from the well to use in different, okay. um, applications gotcha. in the story. Um, yeah. So it's just a, a dark, sweet syrup. That sounds good. Kind of like corn syrup. Um, more like molasses. Okay. Cool. 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 Golden, golden syrup or molasses. Um, so, but, but the thing is food is like the driving uh, plot element yeah. of the story because yeah, it's Alice not, is always eating. Well, and it's not until she changes her size through eating or drinking mm-hmm. that she's able to like move on to the next part of the story. Yeah. Um, like it's about that metamorphosis caused by, uh, intake. Yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting. Maybe there's something there about like when you're, yeah, you're a little kid, you got to eat to be a growing to girl, be big, growing <laughs> grow person. Um, and uh, I always got really excited about how cute the things that she drank and yeah. ate were. Like the eat me cake mm-hmm. has currants spelling out eat me on it when she's trapped in the house and the rabbit and his friends are throwing pebbles at her. <laughs> they turn into little cakes once they fall off of her <laughs> into the room. And those are the ones she eats to get smaller again. Um, it's very appealing to have like food and little bottles that say drink me that yeah. are like presenting themselves to you. The first fantasy food that Alice consumes is the bottle that says drink me on the glass table in that first hall that she enters after falling down the rabbit hole. Um, and first she checks to make sure it's not marked poison. <laughs> she knows she checks to make sure it doesn't have a Mr. Yuck sticker on it. Yep, exactly. Which... Okay, great job, Alice. I can appreciate that. And we get some good commentary there where she's saying that she's read little, several nice little stories about children who had got burnt and eaten up by wild beasts and all, all these other unpleasant things because they would not remember the simple rules their friends had taught them, um, which I feel like is a nice uh, fairy tale joke about how there are always these clear rules to follow. And then and people then break the, them. The yeah. woeful characters... The sign says, do not enter, time to go in. Exactly. (laughs) Um, And the bottle isn't marked poison, so she tastes it. And she says it has a sort of mixed flavor of cherry tart, custard, pineapple, roast turkey, toffee, and hot buttered toast. Sounds pretty great. Fascinating. It's like a whole Thanksgiving feast. It's like the Willy Wonka, um, those the candies, or yeah, the gum that makes you taste a whole meal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sounds really good. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really get descriptions of other flavors yeah. within the, the uh, cakes and drinks and things like that. Let's just imagine them, um, I guess. But I did love that the story starts with her being really disappointed that as she's falling down the hole, <laughs> she uh, <laughs> is excited to find an 
orange marmalade jar, but it's empty. I know. Like, I was like, wow, you were just going to eat the marmalade. Maybe. <laughs> marmalade is not to be eaten on its own. Why not? It's um, too sweet. At the tea party, we get commentary on how they put butter inside the watch to try to fix it. <laughs> It was very good butter. <laughs> and they said it was the best butter. Um, but some crumbs must have got into. Uh, and they say multiple times it was the best butter, you know. And this is something that as a child I didn't really appreciate. But as an adult, I can appreciate, I appreciate the it. best yeah. butter. I've tried many butters now. And I I know what the finer butters taste like. And yeah, um, yeah that's, that's what I would like to eat. <laughs> um, we also have i mean alice at the tea party has a disappointing spread for herself she just gets like a little tea and bread and butter and then they have to change places right away so she has to sit at the march Hare's place where he has just poured a jug of milk on <laughs> it's the it's funny i i understand it better rereading the book as an adult too um than i did in either the Disney cartoon or reading the book as a child that they're just constantly changing places around the table, but they're just like destroying the entire right. It's table. just chaos. Yeah. It's just constant chaos. It reminds me actually, oh boy. Um, so I don't know if inspired by the book or inspired by the film adaptation, but if you have played Oblivion, if you've played the, uh, um, Shagoroth expansion mm-hmm. where you get to like hang out with the madness Daedra and he has this whole I can't remember I think it's called the Shivering Isles um mm-hmm. but it's just this whole place that's totally insane and crazy and like everything is happening it's very Alice in Wonderland it's mm-hmm. very dreamlike um at one point if you talk to Shagoroth and you don't tell him what he wants to hear then he transports you a mile above the earth and then you <laughs> fall and die <laughs> Uh, but if you have played that it is very Alice in Wonderland another food piece um, the mock turtle is named for mock turtle soup which was a dish that was popular during the Victorian period um, which doesn't actually have turtle in it Um, it's mock turtle soup it's mock turtle soup that's right uh, and his, you know, final act is to sing a song about mock turtle soup. Um, it's called Turtle Soup. Wonderful soup. Beautiful soup. Um, and I really appreciated that song. I love how they're always just like every character. They may start out from a relatively calm place, but uh, before long totally. they are just screaming. Yeah, descends. <laughs> and I love the way the end of the song is written where it goes into all caps <laughs> as he finishes screaming, I'm sure. Beautiful soup. It's great. Um, yeah, so a, a lot of fun fantasy food here. Yeah. Um, I think that it inspired, you know, generations and generations of children to attempt to find little drinks and cakes that would make them bigger and smaller yeah. and change them in other ways. Oh, we should go to high tea if the world ever has high tea again. Yeah, if we're ever allowed to do that or that still exists, we'll get some high tea and we'll, we'll put some pictures of that with this episode Yay. on our website. We did it once for my birthday. So we'll close out the episode with Badass Lady Meter. Yeah. There <laughs> aren't very many humans in yeah. the book. Um, and there are a fair number of ladies. Unfortunately, the 
older women in Wonderland tend to just fall into like a weird sort of harpy nag category. They're not. Um, And are drawn in a horrific way, like full on Punch and Judy caricature. Yeah. and so there's not a lot of redeeming qualities <laughs> about them. Uh, yeah. But Alice is a wonderful character, as we've discussed. Um, yeah. But that doesn't mean there aren't problems with the other women in the book. But that's not really what this book is about. It's not a feminist story. No. <laughs> I can say that much. Not. <laughs> um, but I do appreciate that Alice gets to have her own adventure and yeah. do that in an independent she's, way. She's quite smart. She is. And she doesn't have, you know, a guide throughout the process. There, it, You know, the rabbit isn't there, like, telling her what to do. I mean, oh. other than when he tells her to get his fan and gloves, which just leads to a disaster. Right. Um, she's figuring out what she wants on her own and I love that she sees a beautiful garden in the opening scene and then she's like well I'll find it eventually (laughs) which is where she keeps heading um and I I do I do enjoy her and I see why she's become like a symbolic figure for many people um of like this you know somewhat innocent but searching girl who is looking for some kind of truth or meaning yeah she's just trying to keep up with all the shenanigans i relate to that yeah i've definitely felt like alice in wonderland on more especially lately more than one occasion yeah (laughs) yeah maybe we are through the rabbit hole right now but if so it's a lot less fun than this book would lead us to believe more talking animals and less death (laughs) please Less global contagion, more cakes. Yeah. All right? It's simple request. Yeah. If you're listening, whoever and put us And you here. have some ability to affect these things, uh, pay attention. I keep joking with my friends. Like, I'm just going to go on strike. I'm going to go on strike against, like, whatever's going on in the world. And I'm going to wait until some omnipotent being fixes it. Because me striking from existence will definitely, definitely catch their eye yeah as long as you don't become you know an off the grid uh climate denier no I'm no i just i just mean like strike from existence so i'm gonna stop existing oh until, i see yeah just like the cat fading away exactly only your smile exactly. remains yeah <laughs> that's the other that was also a joke that i didn't get when i was younger and that i loved on this reread when she says to the cat can you stop appearing and disappearing so quickly all the time so then he super creepily just slowly makes his body disappear until only his smile remains. Yeah. The Cheshire Cat is great. He did what she asked. Yeah. Um, so Alice is my badass lady and my rating for her, a pigeon that will be friends with her instead of <laughs> brutally fighting her off from her nest. Uh. I love um, that pigeon bit. Yeah, it's pretty great. <laughs> it's really great. Um, my uh, baddest lady is also Alice, and I would like to rate her a mountain of treacle. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Alice didn't seem that into the oh. treacle portion of the story. Well, Grace, that's my rating. Uh, take it or leave it. And I also don't know what a mountain of treacle would be like. It would have to be semi-hardened in order to exist as a mountain. Really uh, critiquing my rating quite a bit today. Great rating. Maybe it's in a jello mold. 
great episode. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, <laughs> for listening. Um, we did go a little far and wide today, but that's, uh, this, that's kind of book spirit of, yeah. of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Seems appropriate. Um, thank you again, Angela, for requesting this. It was a wonderful quarantine read. Recommend to everyone. Um, I think our last few books have definitely put me in a mental place that is helpful yeah. right now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I encourage you to to check out uh, The Forgotten Beast of Eld as well as Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. Um, if you would like to make a request or shout out your thoughts on Treacle, um, you can, yeah, you can give us a little honk uh, <laughs> at dragonbabiespodcast at gmail.com, dragonbabiespodcast.com, on Instagram at dragonbabiespodcast, and on Twitter at dragonbabiespod. We have had a, such a tiny Twitter presence for so long, and we reached 100 followers this week. Very excited about that. Now our announcement of the next book we'll be covering. Yeah. For all who have made it this far, it is going to be The Thief Lord by Cornelia Funke. Ching! It's the sound of a sword. Like a sword. <laughs> so stay tuned for that. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you are all safe, healthy, and as happy as you can be right now since we're all as we've established through the rabbit hole. <laughs> I'm Grace. And I'm Madeline. Until next time, goodbye.